Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 33rd episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. My name is Aaron Morris. I'm a partner with the Southern California boutique law firm of Morris & Stone, recognized by HR Magazine as one of the top 10 employment law firms in the world. And that's not even one of our practice areas. How great is that? If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, or if you need to fight an attorney fee application following an anti-slap motion, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700 or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. Amazing times at Morris & Stone. The victories just keep rolling in. We helped to greatly reduce an outrageous attorney fee application. We eviscerated a meritless defamation claim. And the main topic of this episode, we prevailed on an appeal from an anti-slap motion where the admissibility of evidence was a point of contention. And stay for the after show, and I'll tell you how we defeated an anti-slap motion by prevailing on a different case. But let's begin with item one, the reduction of attorney's fees. In the middle of a trial, I received a frantic call from a woman representing herself in what should have been a pretty generic breach of contract case. The poor woman is being wrongfully sued and thought the best way to deal with the action was with a cross-complaint. Unfortunately, her cross-complaint was found to be a slap. The plaintiff brought an anti-slap motion, which was granted, and a motion for attorney fees followed. The woman had read about me and wanted to hire me to fight the attorney fees. She already had prepared the opposition and really just wanted me to add a declaration. I was just too busy with the trial I was in, but I told her if she wanted to send over the draft of her opposition, I would give her my thoughts at no charge. Opposing counsel was seeking some $90,000 in attorney's fees based on a claim of many hours and including a multiplier. As I've said before, I only get involved in fighting what I consider to be unethical and overreaching fee applications, which was the case here. Way too many hours were spent, and there was no reason for a multiplier. The opposition she'd prepared to the motion was actually outstanding. It was really good, but better than what I've seen from many attorneys. But she'd put all her eggs in the basket of challenging the hourly rate as opposed to the hours. She had pretty much conceded the hours spent, but was hoping to reduce the fees significantly by a lower hourly rate. I showed her all the greatly overstated hours and told her to instead challenge those as well as the completely unjustified multiplier. As I had told the woman would happen, the judge found the requested hourly rate to be reasonable, but agreed that the hours were inflated and that there was no support for the multiplier. The judge reduced the fees by two-thirds. A good deed for someone whose heart was in the right place, but just ran afoul of the slap law. Next comes the tale of the defamation case. Our client posted a completely accurate review on Yelp, but the business did not like what she had to say. Prior counsel had pursued an anti-slap motion, but this was a situation where, since the plaintiff's evidence must be taken as true, it was very unlikely that defendant could prevail on the second prong of the anti-slap analysis. Our client lost on the anti-slap motion, and we were brought in for a final round of discovery and the trial. Too many attorneys are robotic in the way they handle discovery disputes. Propound the discovery, meet, confer on the responses, move to compel. But sometimes no action can be the best action, either because he thought he was being clever or because he was too rushed to give meaningful answers. Opposing counsel had answered just about every discovery request by stating that he'd already provided the information to former counsel. He thought he could pull a fast one. I was coming in. I somehow wouldn't know what had been said. And so uh, he thought he could just get away with saying, well, I already gave that information to the prior attorney. 
but I had all the responses he'd provided to former counsel, so I could certainly determine whether he had provided the information I was requesting. Thus, this created a situation where, for example, I'd asked for all the documentation showing any damages suffered as a result of the Yelp review. I had asked the same by way of the interrogatories, asking for all the evidence supporting any claim of damages. To both, plaintiff had answered that the information had already been provided to former counsel. This created the perfect trap for plaintiff. I brought a motion in limine to exclude any evidence of damages based on the fact that plaintiff had not provided any discovery responses to support those damages. Now, in case you don't know, a motion in limine is a pretrial motion that seeks to bar evidence or some legal theory that the opposition is planning to introduce. The judge did not immediately rule on my motion, but instead took it under submission. And that's actually a great way to handle a motion in limine, especially with a bench trial. My motion had made the judge aware of the issue, and he could then wait and see if the issue actually arose at trial and rule at that point. No point in issuing a ruling in advance when it might not even come up. Sure enough, once the trial started, plaintiff's counsel immediately launched into questions about the damages suffered by plaintiff, and I objected. The judge agreed and excluded any evidence of actual damages. Thus, in the middle of a defamation trial, or actually in the beginning of a defamation trial, plaintiff was left without the means to prove up any actual damages. In his trial brief, plaintiff's counsel had claimed $5 million in damages and he ended up with penny not one in actual damages, all because his attorney got cute with the written discovery responses. Now, I don't think he would have recovered any damages in any event because I didn't think the statements were defamatory. That's why I took the case. But I was happy to eliminate the damages in this manner. Now, a quick bit of strategy here. I always include my discovery and the opposition's discovery responses in the exhibit books. If we are preparing joint exhibit books or at least a joint exhibit list, the opposition always fights me on this because discovery responses aren't technically evidence. You don't just give the responses to the jury to take back to the jury room. But I always include them in the books over the opposition's objections because it makes them so much easier to reference during trial. You've got the defendant on the stand and you ask, you wrote this terrible Yelp review about my client's business and yet you have never once done business with my client. Isn't that correct? And the defendant answers, no, that's not true at all. I've been to their business a dozen times. Mr. Jones, please turn to tab 37 in the exhibit book in front of you. These are your responses to our interrogatories. And when we asked if you had ever done business with my client, you said, I've never done business with the company, but I'm sure they are ripoff. That was your answer, wasn't it? See how much easier that flows rather than trying to go through your file and pull it out? I've seen that train wreck presentation many, many times where the attorney has to search for the response pull it out of his or her file, give it to the clerk to show to the judge, have it passed to the witness, and have it passed back to the attorney. In the case we were just discussing, when the attorney tried to introduce evidence of damages, I could simply direct the court to the discovery responses in the exhibit book. Plaintiff had answered three different types of discovery the same way. His attorney tried to argue that the questions as stated had been confusing, but the judge had all three versions right in front of him, and he could see there was no ambiguity. He even said, plaintiff made his bed and must now lie in it. And that takes us to today's main anti-slap topic. Our tale begins with a father who loved his daughter. We'll call him Dad, and his daughter will be Rose. Rose's mom apparently saw greener grass and divorced Dad to marry New Guy, meaning that Rose would now be spending time with New Guy. But reports from Rose about her time with New Guy were disturbing. She claimed that New Guy had spanked her, and one time she returned home with a badly bruised arm she blamed on New Guy. During the ongoing custody battle, Dad reported his concerns about New Guy to the court in various court documents, stating that based on what Rose was reporting, New Guy was being too forceful with Rose. 
On one occasion, when Mom came to pick up Rose, Rose was particularly agitated about having to go stay with Mom and New Guy. So after reluctantly turning Rose over for visitation, Dad called the police for a welfare check on Rose. New Guy took umbrage with all the accusations of possible abuse, so he filed an action for defamation against Dad based on the statements by Dad in the court documents and the reports to the police. Dad did some research, learned about anti-slap motions, and of course, moi, and called the Sultan of Slap. But to his credit, New Guy had also done his homework. He had found Penal Code Section 11172, which allows one to sue a defendant for defamation for making a false report of child abuse. He claimed that the statements in the court documents were reports, as was the report to the police. I brought an anti-slap motion. As to the statements in the court documents, that was a no-brainer. A statement in a court document is not a report within the meaning of Section 11172, so those statements enjoyed the absolute litigation privilege. As to those, new guy was going down. But the report to the police was a different story. If Dad had indeed made a false report of child abuse to the police, that would fall squarely under Section 11172. To defeat that claim, I had to do a little sleuthing. Dad told me he had not made any report of child abuse to the police. He'd only requested a welfare check. A check welfare request is not a report of child abuse, notwithstanding New Guy's claims to the contrary. So I pulled the police report, and it clearly stated that Dad had only requested a welfare check. So why had New Guy alleged that Dad had reported child abuse? Well, according to him, in the declarations that they filed in opposition to my anti-slap motion, New Guy and Mom both stated that the police told them that they were there on a report of child abuse. I'm now setting up the key takeaway, so give me your full attention. I objected to the declarations by mom and new guy as to what the police officers had said, because that is clearly hearsay. Indeed, it's triple, at least triple hearsay. You see, when dad called the police, someone in dispatch would have taken the call and provided the information to the dispatcher. The dispatcher would then radio the information to the police in the field, or at least make it appear on their little monitors in their cars. And those officers then allegedly spoke to mom and new guy about why they were there. You can see they were multiple steps away from knowing what was actually said by Dad. The trial court granted my anti-slap motion in its entirety, and New Guy appealed. While the appeal was pending, I garnished New Guy's wages for the money the attorney's fees incurred. So that takes us to the oral argument in front of the Court of Appeal. I've got to say I'm loving being able to appear in court by Zoom. No flying to San Francisco or San Jose or driving two hours to Los Angeles or San Diego. I just sit down at my desk and appear by webcam. I hope this never changes. I'm not saying I want COVID to last forever, but perhaps we will realize the wisdom of avoiding all that traveling. So back to the oral argument. When I prepare for oral argument in front of the Court of Appeal, I read and summarize every case cited by both sides. I never want to experience that horrible moment when one of the justices asks, How do you distinguish this case from the Johnson decision? If I don't recall the Johnson case, I just glance down at the squib I've prepared for the case to put me on track. But in this case, the justice asked about a case that neither side had referenced in their papers. In terms of the excluded evidence, how do you distinguish the case from Sweetwater? Thankfully, I'd done a deep dive into and written an article about the Sweetwater opinion when it was published in 2019, so I was familiar with it. But the court was placing great weight on how the Supremes had viewed evidence offered in the anti-slap context. I provided an answer that I will choose to believe was brilliant, but if I actually checked the recording... Probably came across like Ralph Cramden saying hamana, 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 hamana. In Sweetwater Union High School District versus Gilbane Building Company, a school district filed action against contractors seeking to void management contracts for construction projects and to require that the contractors disgorge all sums that district paid to them under the contracts, alleging that certain representations from contractors' companies engaged in schemes with district officials that violated statute prohibiting public officials 
from being financially interested in any contract. The district alleged that the defendants gave meals, vacations, and even tickets to board members and their families and friends and made contributions to various campaigns, charities, and events on the officials' behalf. A defendant brought an anti-slap motion claiming the complaint arose from constitutionally protected political expression. In opposition to the motion, the district offered the written plea deals from some of the defendants, wherein the factual narrative confirmed the gifts had been given to board members with a specific intent of influencing the award of construction contracts. The district also relied on excerpts from the grand jury testimony of several witnesses. Defendants contended that this evidence was inadmissible hearsay. However, the trial court disagreed and denied the anti-slap motion based on that evidence, finding that with the evidence the district had shown it was likely to succeed. The Court of Appeal affirmed the denial, and the matter was taken up by the California Supreme Court. The Supremes provided a very detailed analysis of the evidence offered, and we don't need to discuss that here, but what is important was the court's ruling on how to handle facially inadmissible evidence where there is a chance the inadmissibility could be overcome. Sweetwater represents a pretty major swing of the pendulum as regards anti-slap motions. Prior cases had all stated that the statute had to be interpreted very broadly in order to provide the maximum protections for free speech and the right to petition. But in Sweetwater, the Supreme Court finally said, hold on, Maude, we don't want to give the anti-slap statute so much deference that we end up dismissing legitimate cases. To that end, we should not be so quick to grant an anti-slap motion because the plaintiff is unable to overcome evidentiary objections if it appears those objections might be overcome by time of trial. Quoting the Supreme Court, It may not be possible at the hearing on the anti-slap motion to lay a foundation for trial admission, even if such a showing could be made after full discovery. To strike a complaint for failure to meet evidentiary obstacles that may be overcome at trial would not serve the SLAP Act's protective purposes. Ultimately, the SLAP Act was intended to end meritless SLAP suits early without great cost to the target, not to abort potentially meritorious claims due to a lack of discovery. Notwithstanding the discovery stay, the court has discretion to order, upon good cause, specified discovery if required to overcome the hurdle of potential inadmissibility. The Supreme Court ended its opinion with the following summary. In sum, at the second stage of an anti-slap hearing, the court may consider affidavits, declarations, and their equivalents if it is reasonably possible the proffered evidence set out in those statements will be admissible at trial. Conversely, if the evidence relied upon cannot be admitted at trial because it is categorically barred or undisputed factual circumstances show inadmissibility, the court may not consider it in the face of an objection. If an evidentiary objection is made, the plaintiff may attempt to cure the asserted defect or demonstrate the defect is curable. Let me read that last sentence again because it really subsumes everything that comes before. If an evidentiary objection is made, the plaintiff may attempt to cure the asserted defect or demonstrate the defect is curable. I think there's only one way to interpret that language. It may be possible for a plaintiff to overcome an evidentiary objection if the plaintiff can convince the court that the defect can be cured. The standard has always been that an anti-slap motion is an evidentiary hearing. All the cards are put face up on the table and the court determines who won the hand, giving preference to the plaintiff's evidence. Now it appears that we put all our cards on the table and even if you have the winning hand, the plaintiff remains free to argue to the court that he might still draw an inside straight. So back once again to oral argument. Leaving argument, this is in front of the Court of Appeal, I was 97.3% sure we would carry the day, but I was left to worry about that other 2.7% due to the court's reference to Sweetwater. Was the court intending to overrule the trial court as to the statements by the police officers, concluding that my evidentiary objection could be cured? Thankfully, the answer turned out to be no. 
In the opinion, the Sweetwater analysis was relegated to a footnote, but it was a really scary footnote indeed. Here it is altered to match my made-up names. Plaintiff forfeited any argument that the police officer's statements were admissible despite being hearsay because he could present the evidence without hearsay at trial. For example, he could call his witnesses the police officer who dad asked for a welfare check. But new guy did not raise that argument in the trial court and does not raise it on appeal. In the trial court, dad filed his evidentiary objections, that was me, but new guy does not appear to have filed a response. He didn't. And there is no transcript. Clearly, the court did not state that plaintiff would have prevailed, but there is a strong implication that he might have prevailed had he properly raised the Sweetwater analysis. Now, in my never-to-be-humble opinion, I don't think it would have made any difference. Another point I made on appeal was that even if Dad had claimed child abuse in the call to the police, there was no evidence that it was directed at New Guy. It was Mom who had come to pick up Rose, and Rose did not want to go with her. In that context, it would not have made sense for Dad to report that New Guy was somehow abusing Rose at that exact moment. He wouldn't even have known if New Guy was at home. Some important lessons out of this one. First, for the defendant, be sure to make formal written evidentiary objections. I often see attorneys address evidentiary issues in their reply memorandum, but the court is under no obligation to go into your brief and rule on objections contained therein. Second, if you are or represent the plaintiff, figure out a way to overcome any evidentiary objections and seek permission to conduct discovery if appropriate. And of course, if you're going to argue Sweetwater, Come up with something you can present to the court to say, we can fix this problem if you just give us a chance. Have a great week and try not to slap anyone. The law is so entertaining. You'd think after decades of practice, I'd encounter the same sort of cases all the time. But every case brings some new twist. This is one where I defeated an anti-slap motion without ever even having to argue it. I have to be careful with this one because you'd recognize this case from the news. But here's the fact pattern I came up with when I wrote about it on the California Slap Law website. I represented a company we'll call Optimus. Picture that Optimus is in the cold remedy business and a number of its formulations contain acetaminophen. But one day it is discovered that when acetaminophen is aerialized, it cures baldness and can be sold at a much higher price for that purpose. All the suppliers want to bail on providing acetaminophen to Optimus, so Optimus comes up with a complaint it intends to use across the country against its suppliers to force them to honor their agreements. Optimus knows that the suppliers will claim that the new use is a better use for the acetaminophen because curing baldness, obviously, is the best conceivable use of any drug, especially as compared to a little pain and fever relief during a cold. The complaint by Optimus will challenge that legal theory and, if successful, will get all of its providers back in line. But before Optimus can file its first test case, one of its suppliers, we'll call them Megatron, filed a declaratory relief action under the aforesaid theory. In response, Optimus tweaked its uh, action a little bit and filed it as a cross-complaint. Megatron responded with an anti-slap motion against the cross-complaint. That's when Optimus brought me in to fight the motion. The court was one where the first available hearing date is four months later. While we were waiting, Optimus filed its action against other suppliers in other jurisdictions. When the date came for the anti-slap motion to be heard, the judge decided to continue the hearing. Now, my client was getting very anxious. They wanted to move forward on this. They wanted to know their rights. And they wanted me to go to court to advance the hearing date. And I said, no, 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 just wait for it. And the new date came around and the judge continued again. Client was even more upset. And I said, wait for it. Finally, the case was decided in our client's favor in one of the other cases. Thus, for purposes of the anti-slap motion, we could point to, to that result to show that under the second prong of the anti-slap analysis, 
we were likely to succeed. In other words, if they satisfied the first prong, burden would shift to us to show that we're more likely than not to succeed. And we could just say, Your Honor, look at this other jurisdiction. They've already won in this other jurisdiction. How could you possibly say we're not likely to succeed? So when that ruling came down in the other case, Megatron immediately withdrew its anti-slap motion in our case. Sometimes the best strategy is to do nothing. See you next time.